following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Friends, welcome back to this week's episode of Larger for Life. We're so glad to have you joining us. We've been having a great time these past few weeks working our way through Westminster Larger Catechism, question number seven, where we've been considering the nature of God, who God is, and His and His being. And now, as we move on to the next couple of questions here in the Larger Catechism, we're going to take some time thinking about God in His essential Trinitarian nature, so to speak. And so we're excited to get into these questions. If you have your catechism in front of you, or if you're familiar with it, you'll know that catechism question eight is rather short, and it just complements so nicely. It leads in so naturally to question number nine. So for today's episode, we thought we would simply take questions eight and nine together as we have our free-flowing discussion and study of these things. So as we get started, let me go ahead and read question eight and question nine to center our thoughts on this doctrine of God and doctrine of the Trinity, and then we're looking forward to some fruitful and substantive discussion on the matter. So larger catechism, question eight, are there more gods than one? Answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. Question nine, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one true, eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. So those are the questions we're going to be thinking about today, and to kickstart our discussion, we're going to kick it over to our resident theologian, Trinitarian doctor of theology in residence, our friend Derek Bright. Oh, brother, you can only go down from there. Um, no, these are great questions, and they're vital questions for us as Christians. And um, these are really, honestly, this is what distinguishes us and distinguishes the true Christian faith from other faiths. Um, not only do we believe that there is only one God, we are not polytheists, so Mormons here are excluded, um, and uh, as are any other polytheistic religions, but also, our God is not a generic God. It's not just the Father. Uh, it's not just one mode or one appearance of God, but it is God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Uh, these three are equal in substance, equal in power and glory. So these three persons are um, according to the divines, and I think according to Scripture, of course, these three are co-equal and co-eternal. And so there's no uh, subordination even within these persons. And this is really important because um, we as Trinitarian Christians need to be explicitly Trinitarian. And uh, I think that these uh, these questions really um, have impact on how we worship, how we pray, how we interact with other believers, and so on and so forth. So these are these are great questions, chock full of a lot of truths. Um, I don't know what uh, Spin has in mind here. Spin is actually a Socinian. He actually does not believe in the Trinity. 
Uh, no, actually, I'm one of more of those egg, water, or transformer types. Uh, the the partialism or the father, son, and uh, brother kind of thing. Uh, full disclosure, <laughs> Trinitarian analogies almost never work out, except when Derek does them. And his forthcoming book on eggs, transformers, and water, I think, is going to get rave reviews. I'm really excited. We are going to be giving away a special edition copy at the end of the episode today. Is that correct, Sean? Is that the the volume that we have uh, releasing to our people? Well, uh, that's news to me. But the news that I heard was that our 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 erstwhile Lutheran friend Hans Feeney was going to do a follow up episode to Bad Trinitarian Analogies. You know, Noel Patrick, and it was going to feature all of Derek Bright's analogical attempts he's going to do a breakdown of them in another cartoon episode i'm looking forward to that so as far as the trinity goes i I think in terms of our manner of approach and dare you can probably back me up on this but i think a lot of people because the trinity we we confess uh the diversity you know of the persons but also the unity of the persons and the one essence a lot of people feel very daunted by the trinity but I want to be clear, it is revealed to us for us to take comfort in and to study and to fill our minds with the triunity of God. And so I'll tell folks, look, when you come to the Trinity, when you approach it, is it daunting? Yes. Can you fully understand it? No. So while you can't know God comprehensively, you can know him truly. I liken it to uh, members of our congregation. You know, if you take a little thimble and then you dip it into the ocean, There is no way that that thimble will be able to contain the totality of the water that is in the ocean. And yet it really does have a true holding of the water, you know, in that vessel. And so that's kind of how we can approach the Trinity is, look, we're never going to know God exhaustively as he is, but we do know him truly. And we know him truly as father, son, in spirit. So we should not avoid studying this doctrine, but think that we should give ourselves to it. And if we find it difficult, if it doesn't come naturally, that's to be expected because God is not like the creature. Uh, he is not created. He's the creator and he exists tripersonally, father, son, and spirit. So there's really no good analogy. There's no good illustration that we can draw, but we just have to avail ourselves of scripture uh, insofar as who God is is revealed to us. So, thoughts, guys. I, I, should we go around the room just for a, a half a minute of lightheartedness? What are the worst Trinitarian analogies you've ever heard? Not, not to make fun of the person, but you know, somebody's earnestly trying to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, and you hear this analogy, and it's, man, think looking back on it now, it's just bad. I, I mean, when I was a kid, I heard the classic one, right? It's water, you know, ice cube, liquid water. And then water vapor, it's kind of like that. That's that's sort of the one I heard a lot growing up. I grew up Pentecostal, so our Trinitarian theologian was T.D. Jakes. And, you know, he's a oneness Pentecostal. So, I, you know, we didn't even have bad analogies. I would take the bad analogies. <laughs> Matt, Matt, you speak of that as if it's in the past tense. I thought that was your theologian in residence down there in Dillon. Just just changed right before this episode started. Is that thought, right? Thought if I was going to record a podcast on the Trinity, I should probably be a Trinitarian. So all right. here I am. Here and you all, the, all to, the, to all the church members out there listening along, we're kidding. 
<laughs> yes, Don't we are in our presbyteries. <laughs> Um, so one that 31 I heard, twos abound <laughs> yeah so one that i heard that was bad and and they're all equally bad I, of course i heard the the water one that was the most frequent one that was used but i'd also say uh second that i uh to that that i heard the most often was a three-leaf clover I heard, which is yeah. partialism yeah. uh that's, no, partialism, Patrick. Patrick, yeah. that's right the shamrock um, no yeah, so partialism, no bueno. Uh, it's not a three-leaf clover. Let's not do that. You know, I, I heard uh, this rolling around the Baptist church that I grew up in, and it was um, the analogy of fire. So they would say that the father was the heat, and the son was the wood, and the Holy Spirit is the oxygen or air necessary for the fire mm -hmm. to burn. And, uh, yeah, so that, that would be the one I heard coming up if they even spoke about it. I, I do recall one pastor talking about the Trinity once and he said, you know, we believe in the father. Clearly we believe in the son clearly, but the Holy spirit, we're so unsure. We just kind of, we, we want to let him stay in the closet for a little bit. We don't want to touch on that. So, um, you know, and at least he was honest. He, he didn't know, he didn't know how to articulate, uh, the life of the, of the Holy spirit in the midst of the Trinity. Didn't so, know what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah know, I think another one yeah. that I heard was the the relationship that you're right. I, I am one person, but to my parents, I am a son. To my wife, I am a husband. And to my children, I am a father, but it's still the same me. But how I relate yeah. to them is, is slightly different. That's a big one I That's heard. That's terrible. I've never heard that. That oh, is yeah? awful. Oh, never? Okay. Because uh, oh, Sean just that. made it up. That's mood. <laughs> that was that was Sean's family worship uh, last you night. Heard it here, so, folks. Modalism and, and invented that operates, today. And the way that operates is people will say, "Well, when you look at redemptive history, God revealed Himself as Father in the Old Testament, as the Son in the New Testament, and as the Holy Spirit after the resurrection and ascension." And we'll get into why these things don't hold water. But uh, and wah, wah, how we, wah. I know, but I literally just got that. Sorry, how do we adequately delayed. explain the, uh, the unity of essence, but the peculiar properties uh, or the personal properties of each of the persons? I think Derek, I, I want him to kind of, uh, walk us through that at some point because, uh, personal properties, that's going to be more question 10, but even still, um, Question eight is talking about the singularity of God, meaning that he is in a class of one. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, right? Monotheism. But even while we confess monotheism, question nine tells us that within the one Godhead or in the one Godhead, there are three persons. And so there's not going to be an analogy that adequately captures that. So um I don't know about y'all, but I'm just in the habit of giving people question four, just rattling that one off. And I don't want to say stopping there, but there's plenty in question four in the shorter catechism and a little bit more here in question nine for us to ponder and think on. Right. You know, one of the things I want to say before we you know, go too far afield from eight is that the divines are insisting that the reformed religion or the Protestant religion is the historic monotheism of Christianity. Yes. I, right. I think that's one of the reasons why that's being put down firmly in place uh, with all clarity, uh, that, that this, this is not 
uh, a, a new or a different church, but the reformation of the church, and that there is the consistent historic biblical monotheistic ideal uh, of of God that we're talking about, because that's where we're you know even look at how they they say what they say here. There is but one only the living and true God. There's very uh, very much specificity uh, to the uniqueness of God. It's not one, you know, the God we worship is not one God in the midst of many different divinities, and we're only speaking about his divinity, but he alone is God. So, no, that's, that's a great point, Nick. I mean, and that's that's uh, an allegation or an accusation that was leveled against the early Christians uh, in the early centuries in the Roman Empire and so forth, that these Christians are polytheists, that uh, they worship multiple gods. Do you hear how they talk? And no, uh, they don't. Uh, and the reformers are very quick to make that, that reaffirmation. A, yeah, it's a contemporary accusation uh, amongst Jews, likewise amongst uh, Islamic people against Christianity. They'll say that we don't have a true, we don't hold a true monotheism, and the, the divines would actually insist upon it as the grounds of our Trinitarianism, that our monotheism is the constituent and necessary precondition to then speak about the persons of the Godhead. It is the yeah. unity apart from which we can't even talk about the Trinity. Yeah, you're you're spot on. And the reformers are the, the reform if I might paraphrase the reformers, they're they're saying that the Christian church and the Reformed Church can absolutely pick up and affirm wholeheartedly the great Shema of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. We absolutely affirm that one God. Yeah. You know, we've been uh, addressing bad takes or bad illustrations on how to explain the Trinity. And at best, they're all misleading. At worst, they're heretical. Um, but one of the things that I think we stumble against, too, is this kind of popular myth or accusation that we're just taking a doctrine that was invented or created at the Council of Nicaea. Right. Um, Sean just proved it with the Shema that that is uh, a false accusation that this has been, the Trinity has been taught in the scriptures uh, from the, the very beginning, that our Lord is one. I mean, that's talking about training up your children uh, in the faith, uh, write it on their foreheads. Uh, but it also affirms, the Bible affirms that the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. Um, and so we have questions eight and nine interacting throughout all of Scripture, just as we're interacting with them both uh, here. But it's not as if we have created some sort of uh, doctrine or theological statement concerning the Trinity all the way back in 325 A.D. No, the, the Council of Nicaea, speaking against the, the heresy of, of Arius, uh, you know, I think successfully, but provides the, the boundaries to ensure that the church teaches everything that the scriptures affirm. And we need to make sure that we understand that, that the scriptures are affirming one God who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this isn't an analogy, and maybe y'all can echo this, because again, we didn't come out of the womb I think, with the satisfactory doctrine of the Trinity. That is something that maybe through trial and error and through catechesis, we all came and grew into ourselves. But did y'all ever have this notion that it's almost like the three persons of the Trinity you know, are on a podium? The Father's number one, 
the sun is number two, and then the Holy Spirit's like kind of hanging there in third place with the bronze medal. Mm. But I think that was one of the things that really jumped out at me when reading particularly the shorter catechism, but larger catechism question nine is that the three persons of the Trinity, it's not like a first, second, and third place where one's more God-esque, the other is lesser so, and then the third is just, you know, this abstract impersonal force, I think as many people mistakenly believe, but that these three persons are the same in substance, equal in power and glory, and equal in the right to be worshipped, right? Uh, So... I think taking that podium and then just putting it at one, 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 right? The same in substance, equal in power and glory. It's not the stratification of the persons of the Trinity. Have you all encountered that? Or did you ever think that maybe yourselves at some point? And how did Westminster correct that? You know, where where I see this, <clears throat> I've got kind of a, a story. Some years ago, I, I met with a young man. We were uh, working through the catechism together. Uh, he was uh, one of the students that was in the ministry I had in Savannah, Georgia, and we would meet all the time. And we got to this and, and he's giving the answer as I asked the question and he reverses very subtly uh, a portion of it. He says, and these three are one true eternal God, equal in substance, the same in power and glory. He did it on accident, but I think that's emblematic of the larger issue. That's that's actually how people practically believe about the Trinity, uh, that there are three essential substances uh, that there's a diversity of substance and that there is a rather more the same uh, spoken about them in power and glory. And th- that's absolutely antithetical. That's tritheism. And, you know, I confronted him and he kind of felt the the weight of his mistake. And he's like, oh, is it that big of a deal? It just seems semantic. I said, it means everything. It's at the very heart of the Trinity. They're either one God or they're three gods. Uh, those are not the same thing. They're of the same substance or they're not. Uh, and so, you know, I, I really do. I, I see that in people all the time. Usually it's it's questions. Sometimes it's statements about God where they're trying in their own uh, willpower or brain power or lack thereof to to come up with some explanation of God. And they just accidentally fail. So if I could jump in and, and make a, a quick comment about the Shema, because that was brought up. And I think one of the objections that some non-Trinitarians will bring is that um, the Lord our God is one and um, and that just means one, not only one being, but also one person. And when you get to the New Testament, um, things maybe get complicated or it's not reaffirmed, whatever the case is. Um, there's a, a myriad of objections. But actually, the Apostle Paul uses the Shema in 1 Corinthians but he actually expands it and includes the Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 1, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and I believe he does this again in chapter 12, but in 8, 6, he says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from all uh, from are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. If you were to look at that in the Greek and compare it to, the Septuagint um, uh, uh, of the uh, Shema, where the Shema is mentioned in the Septuagint, it is uh, virtually identical in language, and it's clear that Paul is taking the Shema, he's expanding it and applying it to Jesus Christ. So he is taking what he as a Jew 
knows about God and the oneness of God, the one being of God, and he is applying it there to multiple persons. Okay. And so that's very important that even in the New Testament, that that truth of the one being of God, monotheism, is reaffirmed, but the categories are expanded to include three persons. And then the second thing um, that I would say, uh, we talked about, um, it was mentioned about uh, that these three, because they are one, uh, one essence, one quiddity, if you will, one being, um, one stuff, um, as I've heard one uh, preacher say in a joking way, one stuff, uh, they are equal in worship, right? That was mentioned, I think Spin mentioned that. But you actually find that principle again by the Apostle Paul when he gives a benediction and he doesn't give a benediction and give an order that there's and we would affirm a taxis. And we'll talk about this again. This is more towards question 10. We would affirm a taxis of the Father, Son and Spirit. But Paul actually when he gives a benediction and uh, gives the son first, uh, I believe, and sometimes he gives the spirit. I mean, it, it's not always just the father there. Uh, the fact that he gives a benediction and and places a different person other than the father uh, in first place shows that there's an equality there um, uh, of worship. And that's that's very important. So even in things like that, um, God has revealed himself and shown us um you know, that this is this is who he is and how he's to be worshipped. You know, I want to bring up this conversation that Jesus has. It's a theological conversation regarding the Trinity, and he's having it with his disciples about, about his going away and his going uh, to uh, the Father. Uh, Thomas, in uh, John 14, verse uh, 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Christ responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Jesus is making a, a real distinction about the union uh, or um, the, I don't know how, I don't want to say cohesion, it's not cohesion, the singularity of the substance of God, okay, here, between the Son and the Father. And you have another disciple. Respond in verse 8, Philip saying to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He's asking a question of substance. Let's see him. We see you. We see your substance. But it's enough for us if we were to see his visage, his substance. Jesus responds, verse 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works. And what Jesus is making a point of, again, is the singularity of the substance of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There's not diversity within their substance. Rather, there's only a single and pure uh, unity. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's that is spot on, Nick, because it it reminds me of especially something that I hear here um, in in Dylan representing kind of the deep south Bible Belt, small town. You know, the 
with the with the doctrine of the Trinity being above human reasoning, right? Um, that we cannot grasp the fullness of what it means for God to be one, but also uh, existing in, in three uh, eternal persons, equal in power and glory. It's above our human reasoning. So they'll they'll shy away and say, I don't want that deep theology. I don't want that abstract theology. Just, just give me Jesus, right? I mean, I'm sure we've heard that before. Um, you know, what, what you were just arguing, Nick, is that you cannot have, uh, you know, this, this conversation with Jesus and his disciples cannot exist without the workings of the Father and the Spirit alongside of the Son. And, and it's, you know, Christianity stands or falls with the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and, and if we if we reject the Trinitarian nature of our God, we reject him. We reject how he has revealed uh, himself to us in our Bibles. And, and actually, we reject the gospel. Um, each of the three persons are active within the salvation of uh, the believer. And so we, we need to make sure that we don't allow our people uh, and we don't allow our listeners to to just just breeze through this conversation and say, well, this this deep the- theological conversation or, or these deep theological truths, they don't have any practicality uh, for the Christian. They are full of practicality. Uh, it, it's full of application for us, especially as we think about uh, our regeneration. You know, That's what right. I was... One of the things that I was, uh, I think, struggling, you probably heard me even not want to use the language of cohesion, uh, even pause for a second to use language of unity when we talk about the substance of God, because here Jesus, he has no issue at all speaking about, uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, there's no no flinch. There's, there's no attempt uh, to give some rational reconciliation of it. It just is. There is singularity. I think that's, I really do think that's the better way that we speak about the essence of the Godhead. It's not as if there's spokes on a wheel where you've got three. The, the Son is a spoke, mm. um, the Father's a spoke, and the Holy Spirit's a spoke, and there's a hub, and the hub's the Godhead. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Right. There's singularity. It's not three spokes. It's not as if Jesus is saying, hey, yeah, I'm over here. I'm connected to the Father. No, he's like, you see me, you've seen the Father. Right in me, there is the Father, and likewise the Son uh, to the Father as well. So, yeah, it's it's well, a hard thing to talk about, but you can there, get sort of clear on it. Yeah, there is great profundity, and there's great mystery here, no question, but it is absolutely essential. Derek, go ahead. No, no, I um, I know you're you're wanting to speak. I, uh, something Nick said, I just wanted to say before I forget, because I'm a, um, you know, a, a goldfish with a short memory, but he said the word unity and sometimes we can get caught up and we need to be careful. And I think when we, we use language, we need to make sure that we are using language that we can to the best of our uh, ability, explain and qualify. This is why creeds and confessions are so important because uh, they give us safeguards for our language and our understanding of God and that's why things like the Nicene Creed, um, obviously the Westminster Standards, um, 
the Apostles' Creed, and I would say the Athanasian Creed, which I think I've mentioned before, but it shows how important our understanding of the Trinity is to our salvation. It says, now this is the Catholic or universal faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. And what's amazing is, and it goes on, and I won't read the whole thing, you should, if you've never read the Athanasian Creed, do yourself a favor, go read it. But here's the thing, they are clear um, that, and if you if you look at the, the very end or even the very beginning, um, it says this is the Catholic or universal faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. You cannot be saved without believing in the Trinity. It is impossible. If you are a Christian right. or you say you're a Christian, but you do not believe in the Trinity, first of all, you're not a true Christian um, and you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's how, how vital it is. Now, you, I'm not saying you have to understand it fully or that you have to understand it as much as your favorite theologian. OK, um, uh, there are guys on this panel that probably understand the Trinity better than me. Um, but there's people that understand the Trinity better than us. Like I think of Ron McGraw, right? He's a great Trinitarian theologian. I think of Douglas Kelly. I think of some others that I really admire. Um, you don't have to understand it as much as them, but you have to believe it and you have to trust it. And so I would just encourage our listeners to go to the creeds and confessions. Yes, go to scripture hundred percent, but go to the creeds and confessions and allow them to give you the the safeguards on your uh, on your language and and how to frame some of these more confusing truths because if you go to what uh, we're studying today in these questions eight and nine when it speaks of things like that we're equal that God is uh, in, in the three persons is equal in power and glory equal in substance and all those things what you may not realize is that those uh, words are loaded. There are presuppositions behind that, but they are loaded with implications about your beliefs. So they actually exclude certain beliefs that you may have or may have heard someone teach that you may not know is wrong, right? But the Westminster Standards are trying to teach you, no, actually faithfulness to Scripture and the truth of the Trinity excludes a certain belief. So I, I'll give you one example that I mentioned earlier, and I, I know I'm kind of going on a rant. I, I'll, I'll land the plane here and let... Uh, Don't uh, land it, buddy. Keep going. I'll let Sean uh, jump back in since I cut him off. But one of the uh, modern-day erroneous uh, views of the Trinity that has become very popular that is dangerous... Um, is the error of eternal functional subordination or eternal relations of authority and submission. Um, that is a heresy. Okay. I, point blank. It is a heresy and should be rejected. And the creeds and the confession and specifically here, the Westminster confession, the language they use is specific and it completely rejects that dangerous and erroneous view of the Trinity. And so it is vital. And I know this is kind of my, you know, this is my big red button, the Trinity. You push it and I'll go. Okay. But this is, this is important. Okay. This is important. We must get this right. We must get the doctrine of God right. No, and I'm glad you said all that because it, you're stressing the, th the same things that I want to stress. And that is, this is essential Christianity. 
the Trinity is not some optional extra. This is Christianity 101. Like you said, that's not to say that we're going to wrap our minds around this, this massive, majestic concept. No, there's great mystery and there's great profundity here. We're not going to intellectually comprehend this, this matter. But nevertheless, this is basic level Christianity, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. This isn't just some, like I said, some optional extra. This isn't some higher level uh, doctrine for academic inclined folks for for theological nerdy eggheads no this is for every christian to believe and to embrace and to affirm uh so i'm so glad you mentioned the, the athanasian creed uh because uh, i was gonna th go that as well and then i also thought of this wonderful quote from gregory of nazianzus uh, that he when he's meditating on uh, on the the ever blessed trinity he says no sooner do i conceive of the one than i am illumined by the splendor of the three no sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any of the one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. And so that's sort of a, a semi-well-known quote from Gregory Nazianzus, one of the early church fathers, one of the great Cappadocians. Uh, so getting at the fact that this the doctrine of the Trinity is utterly essential for our Christianity. And Derek, I love how you mentioned even how this is reflected in the writings of the Apostle Paul uh, and some of the benedictions. That's where my mind went as well, is that great benediction from the end of uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. It's, it's the one that folks know and love well. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he leads with Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As he's pronouncing blessing from the one God in three persons uh, upon his readers there in Corinth. To echo what Derek said, I think said so well, is that Westminster divines are using very pointed words and very clear words. I love the word distinguished here by their personal properties. Remember, we worship one undivided Trinity, right? Because if the Trinity is divided and the Son is one-third God, the Father one-third God, and the Spirit one-third God, well, then we have a divided and no longer simple God, as is confessed in the Scriptures um, and throughout the creeds and confessions, uh, throughout the history of the Church. So distinguished by their personal properties, we're going to get into that later, but I could just say I've been actually calling and texting Derek these last couple of weeks because I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, and I just got to John 5. And I tell you, trying to, one, do justice to the doctrine of Trinity is daunting for the preacher. But I'm, I'm so glad that Derek just came out and said it, because that's eventually where I landed, because people will ask, how is this practical? Your salvation depends upon the doctrine of the Trinity, right? That you need to know God as he truly is. We need to have a true knowledge of the true God. Uh, won't be a perfect knowledge, but... We need to grow in our understanding of, of who God is. And naturally, and particularly in John 5, what God does is a reflection of who he is. And so you won't really understand what God has done until you understand who he is. So there's sort of this, I'll call it a symbiotic relationship between the two. We learn what God does. It tells us about who he is, and we learn who he is. And then it tells us about what he does. And uh, the one that came to my mind as we're talking about the 
equal stuffness or the same in stuffness, uh, we might say, of the same in substance, equal in power and glory. I go to John 5, 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself, right? There are attributes uh, and, and this kind of aseity being ascribed to the son side by side with the father. And so we really do believe in the equality of the father, son, and spirit. And we have to, I think our worship should reflect that, right guys? That's one of the unique features of Reformed worship is that it is thoroughgoingly Trinitarian. Help us understand, maybe as we kind of wrap up here, maybe you all have particular ways in which you really emphasize the Trinity in your orders of worship. Where do we see the Trinity in Reformed worship? Uh, how does the Trinity come out either in our preaching or in the order of service? What do y'all do? Y'all have any? Uh, places where you can point our listeners to say, look, this is Trinitarian. Well, I've got a, a couple of things, and don't, don't let me go too long because I want to punt it over to Matt because he's got a great story that he needs to share with us, but a couple anecdotes uh, just to get started. One of my mentors uh, was always, every time he, at least I think every time, every certainly every time I heard him, when he would give a prayer of adoration and invocation at the beginning of a worship service, he would always say, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, we come to worship you this night or you know something like that. He would always open that invocation with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. So he was, in, in his words, pedantically a Trinitarian and just setting the tone there that we are coming to worship this triune God. And yes, we, we think about the good news of Jesus Christ and, the, and, and Christ's gospel, but we are no less worshiping the Father and the Spirit every time uh, we, we come before him in worship. Uh, I was thinking of the the hymn that we we probably all know and love. This is just a, a tangential anecdote, but holy, 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 right? God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Uh, did y'all know Mormons don't sing that, and they change the lyrics in their version of that hymn, holy, holy, holy. Uh, if you go on YouTube and you look up the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing holy, 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 they most of the words are the same as the, the words that we know, uh, but uh, there at the end they say, uh, merciful and mighty, God in his glory, blessed deity. So they strike the words blessed trinity and make it more uh, tasteful in, in accord with their uh, heretical doctrine. So there's there's one Man. major major sect that most contemporary listeners would be aware of, the Mormon quote-unquote church uh, being non-Trinitarian. And then another one of my mentors, and I'll, I'll let this lead on over to, to Matt uh, because I know he's got a great story for us. One of my, another one of my pastoral mentors jokingly said in class one time that, you know, it's, it, you know, it's a good Sunday morning when you commit at least one Trinitarian heresy on accident in your pastoral <laughs> prayer. And he was sort of joking about that, but I dare suspect that that's more common than we would care to admit. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sure I, you know, it's, it goes back to something that we've repeated time and time again, uh, in this episode that we have to be very careful with our language and it's very important for us to to even speak in biblical terms when we're trying to explain uh, the Trinity. And uh, as many of our listeners know, I, I pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Dillon where uh, Dr. Doug Kelly uh, ministered before he went uh, off to Reform Theological Seminary, first in Jackson. Uh, and then as he moved over to RTS Charlotte, he actually would attend uh, worship and uh, evening worship with us and and uh, prayer meeting when he was able and his class schedule uh, allowed it. And there's a great story. I haven't confirmed it with him, um, 
but there was a great story of a of a young man who grew up here in Dillon. He was training to be a, a Presbyterian minister, and so uh, my immediate predecessor allowed him to to speak at our prayer meeting, uh, our midweek prayer meeting, and and Dr. Kelly was there, and you know I don't th- I think I would have changed my subject matter. Um, if I was planning on giving a lecture on the Trinity uh, with Dr. Doug Kelly sitting there. But the, the story goes that he was explaining something like Nick was saying, the spokes and, um, you know, that uh, and even Spin referenced it. Like the, the father is one third. The son is one third. The Holy Ghost is one third. And and then as they combine to form the Trinity, it's. It's almost like a mighty morphin Power Ranger or a, a Super Saiyan Dragon Ball Z kind of looking scene where they yeah yeah all kinda, the Zords all the Zords combined yeah. to, make, to make the Mega Zord yeah my that's kids right yeah 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 so you, my, you my boys are all about Power Rangers so yeah there you go the, <laughs> yeah the, the, there we go. the Zord the Zord makes a very nice illustration for Trinitarian heresy and, and so uh, yeah so all of a sudden they said that Doctor Kelly just smashes his hands on the table and. I cannot take this anymore. Um, and marches up to the front, uh, tells the guy, he's like, you're teaching modalism, you're teaching heresy. I must correct you. And so prayer meeting goes for another like hour and a half as Dr. Kelly gives us a right understanding of uh, of the Trinity. And it's, it's actually pretty interesting because, I mean, if you know Dr. Kelly, you know, he's a early church father's scholar. And so he... He takes a St. Uh, Augustine view where we we can only refer to them as persons because we just don't have a better word to do it. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, what uh, St. Augustine said. He said, you know, it's, it's essentially uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, same in substance, equal in power and glory, uh, they don't combine like the Zorbs to create some kind of greater being, but these three substances or persons, if they must be called that, uh, are at one and the same, uh, equal to each other individually. I love that little phrase, if they so must be called that. Um, just showing you how this is above human uh, understanding and yet so practical uh, for us as well. I would just say that um, once you really begin to see the Trinity in scripture and especially in the new Testament, you'll see it everywhere. Even in the old Testament, you'll start to see these traces of the Trinity. And I'll just give you one to, to ponder here, but Psalm 33, six by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. That word breath is Ruach, you know, um, and which is also the word for spirit. So Psalm 33, six by the word of Yahweh and the, and the spirit of his mouth. Um, that's a, that's a direct um, reference. Once you understand the Trinity to uh, uh, the Trinity's, uh, you know, his, his work, his comprehensive work in uh, the act of creation in the old Testament. Well, this has been an awesome episode, and the good news is is that we will not stop just today talking about the Trinity. We're going to talk about the Trinity in forthcoming episodes, and I think we were originally going to give away uh, you know, one of the 
very impressive works of Derek Bright on Trinitarian analogies, but we're going to spare you that, and we're going to give you a really good resource. This one is thoroughgoingly orthodox. It is called The Adorable Trinity by Mantle Nance. He's an uh, minister in the ARP, comes highly recommended by Matt Adams and others who have endorsed this book. So if you would like and uh, share this episode, we'd love to give you this uh, adorable Trinity. We'll pick one person to send this to. So uh, like and share the episode and um, maybe you'll be the lucky one who gets this book, The Adorable We Trinity. don't believe in luck. It'll be providentially determined that you're the one who wins the book. I Amen. feel like Calvin used the word luck at some point, didn't he? No. <laughs> Good uh, luck. And I, I don't know about at your church, but here here in Tennessee, we have pot providences. All right. That's the worst. That's the worst. I've I got asked in seminary one time and on an exam, what did Calvin think of luck? And I said he didn't. That was my answer. Period. Calvin does not use luck. Calvin does not believe in luck. We believe in providence, spin. Actually, well, we don't. We don't let the record show. We don't call them pot providences. That's the lamest pun in all the reformed world that I'm aware of. Right? Potluck meals, and then you become reformed for two minutes, and you're a rabid Calvinist. It's not luck. It's a pot providence. All right. Ha ha ha. It's a covered dish supper. I'm like right because you're going to eat supper under a cover. Like what does that even mean? We just call them fellowship meals and call it a day. Boom. Same. Right. Same. Well. Yeah, we definitely pop, 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 like pop, pop. and share the episode, and we'll enter you into a chance to win the Adorable Trinity. So enjoyed being here with the guys and enjoyed having you listen with us. Until next time, in the words of John Calvin, good luck and good night. Boo! You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.